Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do a great job. And you can visit the website and give them a call, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine, be in the know and stay up to date. By reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about up-to-the-minute current global events. We'll be visiting with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll be judging the rich and the poor, that discussion. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries, Follow the Leader in its sequel, Shake the Money Tree, will be with us as well. It is September the 13th, and on this day in 1993, after decades of bloody animosity, representatives of Israel and Palestine met on the south lawn of the White House and signed a framework for peace The Declaration of Principles was the first agreement between the Israelis and Palestinians towards ending their conflict and sharing the Holy Land between the River Jordan and Mediterranean Sea that they both claimed as their homeland. Fighting between Jews and Arabs in Palestine dates back to the 1920s when both groups laid claim to the British-controlled territory. The Jews were Zionists, recent immigrants from Europe and Russia, who came to the ancient homeland of the Jews to establish a Jewish national state. The native Arabs, and they do not yet call themselves, did not call themselves Palestinians yet, sought to stem Jewish immigration and set up a secular Palestinian state. On May the 14th, 1948, the state of Israel was proclaimed and five Arab nations attacked in support of Palestinian Arabs. Israelis fought off the Arab armies and seized substantial territory originally allocated to the Arabs in the 1947 United Nations partition of Palestine. After two successive UN-brokered ceasefires, the State of Israel reached formal armistice agreements with Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria in February 1949. These agreements left Israel in permanent control of the territory it had conquered during the conflict. The departure of hundreds of thousands of Palestinian Arabs from Israel during the uh, war left the country with a substantial Jewish majority. Several restricted the rights of uh, Arabs who remained. Most Palestinian Arabs who uh, left Israel uh, retreated to the West Bank and then controlled by Transjordan, present-day Jordan, and others to the Gaza Strip, controlled by Egypt. Hundreds of thousands of exiled Palestinians moved permanently into refugee camps. By the early 1960s, the Palestinian Arab diaspora had formed a cohesive national identity. In 1964, the Palestinian Liberation Organization was formed as a political umbrella organization for several Palestinian groups and meant to represent all Palestinian people. The PLO called for the destruction of the Israeli state and the establishment of an independent Palestinian state. In the Six-Day War of 1967, Israel seized control of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula, and the Golan Heights. Israel permanently annexed East Jerusalem and set up military administrations in the occupied territories, though Israel often offered to return some of the territory seized in the return for security requirements of Israel, the Arab League opted against formal negotiations in the Khartoum Resolution of September 1, 1967. 
The Sade was later returned to Egypt in 1979 as part of the Israeli-Egyptian peace agreement, but the rest of the occupied territories remained under the Israeli control. A faction of Israelis called for permanent annexation of these regions, and in the late 70s, nationalist Jewish settlers moved into the territories as a means of occupying this or accomplishing this aim. As you can see, this has been a bloody mess for many, many years, and uh, still not settled, obviously, is it? But uh, nevertheless, uh, Israel refused to open direct, uh, open direct talks with uh, the PLO. In 1991, Israeli diplomats met with joint Jordanian-Palestinian delegation at the Madrid Peace Conference. In 92, labor leader uh, Isaac Rabin became Israeli prime minister, and he vowed to move quickly on the peace process. He froze new Israeli settlements in the occupied territory and authorized secret negotiations between Israeli and the PLO that began in January 1993, in Oslo, Norway, by the way. These talks resulted in several key agreements and led to the historic peace accord of September the 13th, 1993. And there you have it, the agreement in 1993, but still no peace in the Middle East. Or former Florida uh, governor, or I should say Florida governor, not former, please, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis slammed President Joe Biden during remarks on Friday after Biden took cheap shots at DeSantis during a widely criticized press conference. The reporter asked DeSantis about Biden's remarks, noting that Biden did not mention DeSantis's by name, but was obviously referring to the Florida governor. Well, I would just say generally that when you're taking action that's unconstitutional, that threatens the jobs and the people of my state, Many, many thousands of jobs. I'm standing up for them, DeSantis responded. We're going to protect those jobs against federal overreach. This is a guy who criticizes the state of Florida for protecting parents' rights. He says school boards should be able to eliminate parents' rights and force five-year-old kids to wear masks all day. That's what he thinks is appropriate government. Yet here he comes from Washington, D.C., instituting an unprecedented mandate, which even his own people have acknowledged in the past is not constitutional. That's not leadership, said DeSantis. And I think the problem I have with Joe Biden more than anything is this guy doesn't take responsibility for anything, DeSantis said. He's always trying to blame other people, blame other states. This is a guy that promised that when he ran for president, he would shut down the virus. If you look now, there's 300% more cases in this country today than a year ago when we had no vaccines at all. So his policies are not working, said DeSantis. He's absolutely right. And a call has been issued for Americans to take a stand against the vaccine mandates by walking out on their jobs or schools. On Thursday, President Joe Biden said he would draft executive orders forcing all employers with more than 100 workers to institute vaccine mandates, as well as imposing them on federal workers and federal contractors. According to the news advisory provided to the Western Journal, The Great American Walkout kicked off on Saturday with a San Diego news conference to announce the launch of a nationwide peaceful protest of police officers, firefighters, medics, educators, and parents who are all greatly concerned with President Biden and his multiple other state governors, as are other uh, state governors at recent calls for nationwide COVID-19 vaccine mandates. These advisory noted... The advisory noted that the mandates will affect 100 million Americans, including all federal workers and contractors, accompanied by the requirement that these large companies must impose vaccines on regular invasive 
test or regular invasive testing for employees. So, uh, nevertheless, the, the news release uh, outlined all the things and the reasons why this is a bad idea, but I think it's a great idea. This goes through Tuesday, so uh, we'll see what happens, but I know that there are a lot of federal employees who are now balking at this uh, mandate, and certainly a number of us. In fact, there's one hospital in the United States that's cut off uh, birthing or uh, delivering babies because they just don't have the nurses. They walked off the job. They're not going to put up with these mandates. And uh, only uh, my understanding is that only about 40% of healthcare workers, or 40% of healthcare workers, do not want to get vaccinated. So there's a problem that uh, Biden has, and he's uh, among other things is this mandate, which would be probably uh, be found to be unconstitutional without at least Congress voting to, uh, to impose the mandates. But also, he's got a terrible problem with football fans in uh, colleges, Alabama football game, uh, F.U. Biden, big chant going, and many, many uh, college games around the United States. He is not very popular with college kids, evidently, and uh, because those chants were uh, very present all over uh, the United States. Dershowitz, by the way, Alan Dershowitz says that uh, this will likely be found unconstitutional as well. And as I mentioned, college football fans have been chanting F. Joe Biden in the stands during games. Saturday marked the second straight weekend of presidential taunts. Old Rose Sports identified at least Four instances of, of chance of F. Joe Biden at college football games during the uh, weekend of September 4th. The chant broke out in Coastal Carolina University, Virginia Tech, Auburn University, and Texas A&M. The chant broke out again amid the student section at the Auburn-Alabama game on September the 11th. Another video showed students at the stand shouting F. Biden at the Mississippi State-North Carolina game on Saturday. <laughs> That's so it's just amazing to me, this guy. And he's asking, why are they doing that? <laughs> he was confused and didn't understand why this is happening. Well, it's happening because of what happened in Afghanistan. It's happening because of the unconstitutional taking of power. It's happening because of the border crisis. It's happening because of inflation. There's so many reasons. And uh, Joe Biden just doesn't get the message. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman. He's the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music 
and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. You can find out more by visiting the very robust website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now, we have with us Mark Schulman. He's an author. He's written several books, mainly on past presidents. He's also the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Good for kids of all ages, including you and I. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. So, Mark, uh, there's a lot going on in the world right now, but I thought we'd start off by just uh, an update on what's going on with COVID around the world. So COVID it seems to be coming in, coming in waves, very much so, in very various parts of the world. Um, as we've seen the wave in good parts of the United States, um, in Israel there's been a wave here, which surprised everybody because the vaccination rates are very, very high. Um, the discovery here was that the, it was necessary to give a booster shot, since most people in Israel got, got their original shots very, very early, starting in December of last year. Uh, studies showed that by six months, the... Um, the ability of the vaccine to pre- to, pre- um, to pre- present uh, prevent excuse me infection had decreased substantially, mm-hmm. and so they've given out booster shots now to about two and a half million people. Everyone is anyone who's gotten the shot six months or more before and can get it. Uh, the recent studies have shown that um, it's 33 times more effective. Those who have taken the booster are 33 times less likely to become infected and 30 times less likely to be seriously ill. Um, what we've what they've seen is two things. Number one, at the moment, the, the serious ill people, um, the those that are unvaccinated, which represent 
um, 10% of the adult population at this point represents 60% of those who are seriously ill. That's in Israel, uh, of so, course. Hmm? That's in Israel. That's in Israel, correct. Yeah, okay. um, and um, what the problem in Israel, among other things, is the fact that uh, it's a very young country with a very high number of, of uh, youngsters under the age of 12 who can't be vaccinated, and 60% of those who are infected have been children. Now, the problem is the children come home, and you know, these are the time of the holidays, the Jewish holidays at this time of year, come home, go to family dinners, and then give it to their parents or grandparents. And one of the things that people don't understand about this disease, in my opinion, is that it's a numbers game. It's purely a numbers game that even if you're vaccinated, and let's say a vaccine works is 95% effective, if you meet 20 people with COVID, you're going to get the disease. I mean, by, you know, not definitely, but that, that, that's what the, that's what the uh, numbers say. Mm-hmm. So if your child has it and you're seeing the child all the time, then the chances are even if you're vaccinated, you're most likely going to get the disease. And unfortunately, I just heard from my daughter overnight in New York, one of her closest friends who had COVID, um, and the first wave in New York a year ago, I mean, a year and a half ago in May, um, her two children got it. One came up from a dance uh, studio where all the kids got it, and now she has it again. Hmm. Mark, are you there? Emergency room last night. So, yeah, well, that's, so a... that's someone who had COVID, was vaccinated, um, but again, the two kids brought it home. Yeah. Both kids, both of her children have it, and she got it as well because she's clo- close contact. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the behavior of the virus is uh, so interesting. So, what about ar- around the rest of the world? Are things beginning around to- the rest of the world? We've seen uh, peaking in in much of Europe, um, and we've also seen um, obviously it peaked in India and has gone down. Uh, Asia is in terms of Cambodia, Vietnam, and those places, Indonesia have had severe cases. South America, it seems to have peaked and is um, now on, uh, you know, it's now decreasing. Africa seems now to be very problematic, but we don't hear a lot about the numbers there from Africa, unfortunately. Right. Um, And again, it's, you know, this worldwide pandemic that affects everybody. And um, there's no way to keep, you know, any country, New Zealand tried to, to be a complete island, which it is. And even in New Zealand, somehow the, the Delta variant managed to get in. Yeah, and draconian uh, efforts in uh, Australia too. It's just uh, shocking what <laughs> what's going on with the yeah. Well, I mean, there. the draconian efforts do work, by the way. I mean, that that's the reality. If you're willing to pay the price, the economic price, it does work. I mean, clearly the look, the virus is transmitted by people seeing each other. Mm-hmm. If you don't see anyone else outside of your own family, then the virus isn't going to transmit. Now, you can't live your life that way forever, obviously. Right. Um, but um, and of course, in those countries where people wear masks, then they, they, it's been less virulent. It hasn't gone around as much because people are generally masked, and masking is clearly helpful. How you know whether it's a hundred percent or fifty percent, it is some percentage of, of helpful along the way. Yeah. And in here in Israel, you can't. Um, you every, everybody indoors must wear masks, and uh, in order to go to any sort of major event, you have to either be vaccinated. With two, and starting October first, with three vaccines, or, or six months, six months or three vaccines, or you have to have been tested uh, negative uh, for COVID, um, and you have to take within the last two days. Yeah, it's so interesting. So. so interesting. So, Mark, let's let's move to other things that are going on in the world. Let's move to Iran. So, Iran, um, 
you know, Iran is moving forward with its program. It came to an interim agreement with the um, International Atomic Energy Commission for the moment that it will put off censoring them for not allowing any sort of inspections. Uh, it's a sort of um, it's a band-aid on the situation. It's not at all clear whether they're willing to negotiate to come to a new a new agreement. Um, so it's it's very problematic to say the least. Um, they're exporting their former terrorism all over the Middle East. They've created a, they've created a base where they're training the uh, Hezbollah from Lebanon, the Houthis from Yemen, um, and the Iraqi militias use uh, RPVs, in other words, remote pilot vehicles, to use them as attack vehicles. Ah. So they're teaching all the terrorists around the world how to use them. So not a good situation. No. Uh, they've moved forward, you know, leaving the JCOPA was clearly a mistake because there was no follow-up plan. So I, I uh, and, regret uh, not having made uh, notes on this, but uh, did I read that the uh, United States has removed missiles from Saudi Arabia as a method of or means of uh, appeasing Iran? No, I don't think that's the case. I mean, it has moved some missiles. I mean, let, let's, let me redefine that. There's been uh, certain redeployments from the Gulf because the Gulf was a staging area for Afghanistan. Hmm. So as a result of that, certain things have changed in terms of American deployment, but I don't think it has anything to do directly to do with Iran at the moment. Okay. Um, any action will be, you know, critics will find any action as an appeasement of Iran. I don't think that's the case at the moment. I can't say what's going to be in the future, obviously. Um, but right now there has been some movement of some American troops out of the Gulf, but I believe almost all of it relates to the fact that and we're no longer in Afghanistan. Hmm. Okay, I hadn't thought about that. So, how about how about uh, what's going on in Germany? So, Germany has <laughs> in, has having elections on September twenty sixth, and um, originally the the thought was the Conservative Party was going to win again. After all, it's won last four elections, uh, but Angela Merkel is not running for re-election. She herself is extremely popular. Her successor has been less popular, to say the least, and it seems to be tearing, bringing down the party with him. He was the um, governor, or is the governor, of the state of Bavaria, where they had all the floods, if anyone remembers recently. Mm -hmm. And by and large, the view was that he did not do such a great job in, in dealing with, the, with the, the flood, so that's hurt him considerably. At the moment, the Social Democrats and the Green Party are in a position, possibly, uh, to win enough seats between them to form a government, um, so we'll have to see. Um, it's not not it's not a really ideological election. More than anything else, it's it's very much an election about policy and concern for the future. In in that sense, and, um, and the Greens, of course, always have a support amongst those people who consider the environment the single biggest yeah. element. Obviously. We moved away from Israel and mentioned Iran, but <clears throat> right now, of course, uh, there's been hostilities between uh, the Palestinian organization and uh, and Israel. Where, where does that stand right now? Well, you've, you look, you had a situation that took place a week ago that four, um, six, excuse me, uh, prisoners, uh, security prisoners, who were terrorists, managed to escape from an Israeli prison. Uh, four have been recaptured, two are still out. Every time they capture one of them, uh, the, mis the uh, Islamic Jihad f fires a missile from, from Gaza. There are two different things going on here. Um, on one hand, the Islamic Jihad always wants some sort of confrontation. They are supported directly by Iran. Hamas, on the other hand, 
uh, wants to get its money again, and Israel refuses to give money that directly to Hamas. It wants the money that's coming from Qatar to go to the Palestinian people in Gaza and not through Hamas, and Hamas has not been happy with that. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, this talk is going to be another confrontation. On the other hand, it's not clear you know, who would gain what from any confrontation right now. So I'm, I'm not willing to be a, um, a prophet here at all and say what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. Anything is possible. Um, but that's constantly the situation. The situation, you know, on the northern border with Lebanon is falling apart. I think someone just wrote um, that the economic situation in Lebanon is the third worst economic catastrophe um, in the history of the 20, you know, the modern world. Uh, giving examples, the worst one was the was the Great Depression in Chile, and the situation in Spain, the beginning of the Civil War, and this is the worst uh, of any other situation, which makes it awfully bad, to say the least. Absolutely. No food, no money, no no fuel. I mean, it sounds like a terrible situation. Yeah. It, today is the anniversary of the uh, signing of the Declaration of Principles between the Palestinians and the Israelis on the, on the uh, White House lawn uh, in 1993, and uh, not a lot of progress since. No, I mean, look, you had two things happen after that. Uh, a, uh, Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by a right-wing extremist in Israel who opposed any sort of agreement. And then, B, you had Arafat when he couldn't get his way. Um, instead of coming back when, when the, the Clinton-Camp uh, David um, negotiations with Ayub Barak, and it was followed by an American American bridging proposal that Barak accepted and uh, Arafat refused and rejected and didn't come back with a counterproposal, then they launched um, the second intifada. And which was the whole period of when buses were blowing up, and um, you know thousands of Israelis were killed in buses and cafes and all those type of situations. And let's put it this way: it soured a good portion of the Israeli public on the chance of making peace with the Palestinians in this generation. Yeah, absolutely. So you know we've uh, just. Uh, uh, memorialized 9-11. Uh, it was a very sad weekend, quite frankly, walk, watching the reading of the names I found to be very, a very solemn occasion. Kind of brings up the whole question about our foreign policy going forward. I was wondering if you had any thoughts or comments. I had some thoughts. I was thinking back about it, and I realized that I've been wrong over the, over the years to some extent. I mean, I was a supporter going all the way back to the Vietnam War in my youth. I was the one who... who counter-protested in favor of the invasion of Cambodia. I remember doing that mm. in Grand Central Station uh, when I was on, in high school. Um, and I supported uh, the American, American role in Vietnam. I certainly supported, um, initially, of course, the American invasion of Afghanistan, Iraq a little less so, but still. And, you know, the people to the le- I'm pretty much a centrist when it comes to most things in foreign policy, um, but the people that left of me, I have to say, uh, retroactively um, seem to have been right. I don't know how else to look at it. And I look at the divisions in America, right? And, we, and the divisions in America come, go back to the Vietnam War more than anything else. When you think about it, when did America start becoming so divided, leaving aside the racial issues for a moment? Let's put those totally in a separate basket. Um, but America started becoming divided over the Vietnam War, where you had, you know, uh, protesters against the Vietnam War and people calling them traitors, and you had them thinking the people in the military were fascists, and right. that's where the real divide came. It didn't occur during World War II. It didn't occur during Korea. Um, 
and that divide has only gotten worse over the years. Um, and sometimes I, I wonder, you know, why. And uh, I can't come to a, to a, to a, to a very clear conclusion. Um, it may go back to what Eisenhower said about the military-industrial complex. Yes, I mean, that is obviously true. And obviously, what Eisenhower warned about is, is very much the case and the amount of people who've become wealthy off of consulting to the Pentagon and all the things that the Pentagon has done over the years. There, there is no question that's a very, very significant problem. But you have to also balance the fact that America does have enemies. Mm -hmm. So, And you also have to balance the fact that you know, what is the role of the largest superpower in the world? You know, what is its role in the world? And who is supposed to make sure that the seas remain open against pirates and other other threats, not the United States with the, by far the largest navy? Does the United States give up that role? I don't know. I don't have those answers. Um, but there needs to be some sort of balance between maintaining or being the, the key player in maintaining global, uh, global order, which is what the United States concluded it had to do after World War II. Remember, it didn't just fall into it. It realized during you know, World War II, America fought and realized that it does not want to fight another war like World War II. And part of the reason it established all of these global institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, the UN, obviously, uh, to try to maintain some sort of global order. And to, by and large, it's worked. I mean, despite all of our, our problems, the global order has been maintained ever since World War II. Mm -hmm. Trade is up, I don't know how many, you know, thousands of percentage, uh, by and large. Uh, the world has been peaceful. There's been no world wars. We've, we've got engaged in wars and lost people, but nothing on the scale of what took place in World War I or World War II. Yeah. So how do you ensure the fact that uh, we don't fall into a World War II situation, um, and yet, don't become involved in all sorts of sideshows um, to ensure that our ideals are embraced by the whole world that at the end of a gun. Yeah. So uh, help, help us understand the, uh, you had mentioned that you think, looking back in retrospect, you as a centrist uh, really think that the left has had the right pro uh, policies going forward. So t could you define those policies for us? Certainly. I mean, I, th I think, and I wouldn't say general, on, all, on all matters, I don't agree with many of leftist position on, in foreign policy, but I think the concept that the United States uh, should involve itself in civil wars abroad in any form or matter, I think it's very clear that it should not. Right. Uh, the problem in the gray area is what happens when, when there's massacres taking place. Um, and that becomes a, a question of, you know, at what point um, does the United States or someone else have to intervene if people are, you know, massacring thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people? That happened but in Africa. That part of, hmm? Yeah, that happened in Africa, as a matter of, I'm trying to recall, under the Clinton uh, administration. Well, it happened in Rwanda. Rwanda, that's the... It also, uh, yeah. it also happened, don't forget, in Cambodia after the end of the Vietnam War. Pol Pot right. killed about a million people. Um, so... You know that's always always a question, but of course in in um, Serbia and uh, the United States did intervene. Yeah, Bosnia and Serbia, we did intervene and we stopped the war, and it didn't cost us anything. Right, we used our air force and we stopped the the slaughter that was taking place in Bosnia. So, where 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 is the where's the right balance? I don't have the right answers or all the answers. I do know that clearly. It was a mistake to try to fight the Vietnam War. It was a mistake, obviously, to to try to remake Afghanistan. 
It was certainly a mistake to try to remake Iraq, um, but it's not a mistake to have American troops in in Europe uh, in case you know if, so if Russia becomes aggressive. And I think the United States needs to defend Ukraine if the Russians invade. But what do we do about Taiwan? Mm-hmm. Such um, a these are difficult questions. Very difficult questions. And to your point, I mean, it just requires us to understand and the globe to understand what our role is in, in the. Uh, in the world. Right, and that's that's one of the things that, of course, we've discussed this many times over the last few years, is that none of our politicians, Democrats, Republicans, right, left, conservative, liberal, no one has been willing to have an in-depth discussion with the American people and, and about what that role should be. Um, listen, uh, I think if it's laid out, if, if we find the right balance of America being that, you know, that uh, light on the hill on one hand, whether it was Reagan or the governor, um, the governor of the first governor of Massachusetts talked about that in terms of Boston. Um, if we wa- we want to be that in terms of who we are socially and democratically and everything else, and what is the right balance of using our military power over a period of time? I think that's something that really needs to be discussed. Yeah, um, no one's going to replace the United States in the world, unfortunately, uh, at least not in a positive sense. You know what, but on the other hand, we can't fight, you know, civil wars anymore. Yeah, what what makes the problem, I think, particularly complex is the fact that we have special interests in the federal government, like the CIA, like the FBI, and other agencies, the State Department, who have their own agenda, quite frankly. And uh, the, these conflicting agendas sometimes lead to confusion in, w- in which direction we're going. Well, yes, to some extent, but, th- but that's all in the implementation. I think first and foremost... There needs to be a vision of what the American role in the world should be going forward. And there needs to be a buy-in, whether it's Democrats and Republicans, whatever. You know, we need to go back to that era where politics ended at the, uh, where, how do they go, at the uh, shores, at, at the um, shores end, I think yeah. it was. You know, the, we, we didn't get involved in politics when it came to foreign affairs. There was broad consensus. Now, it may be bad there was broad consensus, but there was broad consensus. And yeah. I think... One of the things we need to do is find the point of consensus. And um, when we find that point of consensus, then that should be the American policy going forward. We should, we need to start with a, uh, with an agreement to uh, look for the point of consensus. <laughs> because Absolutely. <laughs> uh, clearly we need to begin to look for it. But I really don't think the Americans are that divided about this matter, frankly. You don't? I oh. truly don't. I truly think that the politics of the last 10, 20 years has divided Americans on much more than they're actually divided when it comes to the actual issues. Yeah. I think we've become more partisan, more, you know, my team, my person, but I don't think the divides are that great when it comes to the actual issues. Hmm. And I think that's one of the problems is we've, 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 we've replaced slogans with, with actual policy issues, policy questions. And I think that's more than anything else um, what divides Americans is this slogans, this politicization of every matter, my team, my view. But wait a second, do we agree or don't agree upon the actual policy? Yeah, you know, do we uh, want this or do we not want this? 
Jim uh, Carfano just uh, from the uh, Heritage Foundation just made that very point, Mark. It's uh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, as usual, we've run out of time before we run out of uh, material to talk about, Mark. But I just genuinely appreciate your commentary on the show. I remind our listeners, HistoryCentral.com, multimedia website. Check it out, uh, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Have a great week. You as well. Thank you. All right, coming up, uh, Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000-square-foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It is brought to you by, in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best. And I proudly serve as board chairman for the first 15 years of his existence and now building this wonderful performing arts center in downtown Naples. I hope you check it out. Golf Shore Playhouse. Org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. He is the professor, he's the uh, president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. It's always a pleasure. My pleasure indeed. Uh, tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We are a privately funded organization that's focused on young people of high school and college age we endeavor to inspire and educate them in ideas of private property, free enterprise, entrepreneurship, limited government, and personal character. 
We do that through our website, which is fee.org, and also through uh, many online events and in-person events as well, videos, you name it, uh, whatever the venue is, we uh, likely have produced something uh, to reach young people with this message. Uh, with a, an important message, and I've been to some of the national conferences, and they, it is ter- they are terrific. Uh, if you have a young person in your life who's college or high school age, introduce them to the Foundation for Economic Education at fee.org, F-E-E.org. Larry, you wrote a great piece on judging the rich and the poor. Maybe you can tell us about it. Okay. You know, we are conditioned, it seems, uh, to respond to the poor or the rich as general categories, uh, in certain specific ways that I think are unwarranted. If somebody asked you, are you for the poor, almost everybody would quickly say yes. And if you asked them, are you for the rich, so many people would automatically uh, want to say no. Mm. Uh, but my point in this article was that each of us is a unique individual, and you cannot judge people by the group that they're in, whether it's uh, the income grouping they may be in, which is often quite temporary, uh, or by the color of their skin, or by the religion they hold to. I mean, these are superficial things, and to judge people or to stereotype them according to such broad categories is, I think, a kind of bigotry. Instead, you want to know, okay, if this is a poor person, that's one thing, but tell me more about that person. What if they're poor because of their own bad behavior, their repeated bad behavior, Mm -hmm. then you might be um, of a slightly different view, maybe a very different view. Uh, If they're poor through no fault of their own, then you're probably uh, uh, much more sympathetic. And the same is true of the rich. There are good rich and bad rich, just Mm -hmm. as there are good poor and bad poor people. Yeah, so certainly uh, once you kind of drill down and peel the onion, as it were, I can uh, make a better decision about those people. The other thing, too, is, you know, this is all very dynamic. You're not born rich or born poor. Uh, You (laughs) may move from one column to the other based on your own behavior over the course of a lifetime. That's right. And this is a common fallacy in examining uh, groups of people by income. Uh, It's a very static view. Uh, The assumption sort of is, or at least people are led to believe, that the assumption is that uh, if you're poor, uh, yesterday, you're poor today, and you will be poor tomorrow. But uh, the fact is, the, although the percentage of people in society who may be uh, designated as poor, that may not uh, change all that much over a period of time, the composition of the people in that group uh, typically does change, especially in a, an economy as fluid and dynamic and still relatively free as America's economy. Uh, I mean, a lot of young people are poor simply because they're young and inexperienced, but uh, they typically move out of the poor category with time. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at a a group of, you know, say the lowest uh, income, lowest 10% of income uh, people today, and then look at them five years from now, they're not the same people uh, typically because uh, if they have utilized even minimal talent uh, and experience, they probably have begun to move up the ladder. Uh, absolutely. Maybe you could speak to the whole biblical notion about uh, serving the poor. I mean, the blessed are the poor in spirit, for sure they shall inherit the earth, uh, you know, which is uh, one of the Beatitudes. Uh, yes. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, in the Beatitudes, which are part of the Sermon on the Mount, 
Uh, Jesus famously says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Sometimes that's abbreviated, unfortunately, to simply blessed are the poor. Uh Uh, But in the Beatitudes, he is speaking not of people uh, of a certain income category. He's talking about people who are uh, poor in spirit, meaning that uh, meaning a good thing, meaning they're open-minded, they're humble, they're eager to learn, uh, and uh, they have a lot of room for growth yet in terms of their understanding of uh, their creator and his intent. Uh, that's a very different uh, viewpoint than, you know, than saying blessed are those who have uh, an income that qualifies for food stamps. I mean, that's not what Jesus had in mind. Right. Uh, he wanted people to come to him with... Uh, a kind of humility that, hey, yes, I need help. I, I I'm not perfect. I I, I need improvement. Uh, uh, lend me a hand. Uh, and that's meant more in a spiritual sense than it is in a material sense. So interesting. You'd mentioned uh, uh, an author, father of liberation theology, Gustavo Gutierrez. Maybe you could t- uh, tell us about that. Yes, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, who's still living. Uh, is typically thought of as the father of liberation theology. He's a Catholic cleric in, uh, from Peru, and uh, his view was a kind of Marxist interpretation of uh, the Bible. He, he, uh, he speaks of a preferential option for the poor, and, you know, in one sense, we all have that. I mean, if you want to help the poor and want, uh, with some money that you want to donate, you're not going to give it to Jeff Bezos, right? You're going to give it to people who actually need it. Uh, And there's nothing wrong with that. That's common sense. Uh, What Gutierrez uh, does is he takes it a step further and says the government should uh, be the earthly entity that uh, helps the poor by first taking from the rich and giving it to them. And there are a lot of problems with that. It may be motivated by good intentions in many cases, but... uh, if the end result is that it breeds dependency, that it crushes the work ethic, that it makes people irresponsible, that it penalizes success by taking from the successful, it produces a lot of negative consequences that Guterres uh, doesn't seem very interested in. That's so true. In fact, uh, and sometimes the money just doesn't end up where you intended anyhow <laughs> because of the poor. That's right, yeah, depending on how uh, you give to the poor and and which poor you give it to. I mean, I stopped years ago giving to panhandlers in the street only because I just I just thought about it and thought, you know, I really don't know what this guy's going to do with the money. Yeah, And uh, there are plenty of those uh, in that situation who don't use it for good purposes. So true. Larry, again, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. You can find this column. I believe it's on FEE, isn't it? F-E-E dot org. Uh, no, this one is at uh, a, a website called lelamerican.com, the American in English, lamerican in Spanish.com. Or you can go to my website, lawrencewreed.com, and it's the first one listed there under Very. my blog. All right, and visit fee.org, F-E-E.org. Larry, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Bob. Uh, my pleasure indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Jim McTagg. Former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of two great murder mysteries, that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. We have with us Jim McTagg, as I mentioned before the break. Uh, he's the former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He also is an author of a couple of great murder mysteries, Shake the Money Tree, uh, well, that's the sequel, and, and the uh, first book he wrote is uh, Follow the Leader. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. It's a pleasure, uh, Bob. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking here how uh, the, the U.S. Congress, both political parties, are uh, so far afield in, in, in addressing the real wants and needs of the American public uh, that, that both parties are... Uh, risking irrelevancy and replacement by uh, some uh, more uh, intellectual uh, party you know, that, that has its, its fingers on the pulse of uh, what people really need, you know, yeah. not, not what big contributors need, uh, but what the average person needs. You know, mm. The way the political system is set up now, uh, big contributors have the biggest voice in determining uh, what federal spending should be. So, for example, the the Democratic crazy, crazy three trillion dollar infrastructure proposal really is uh, designed to line the pockets of uh, uh, green investors, yep. uh, like uh, Al Gore. You know, so it's it's not it's not really designed to make life better for the average person. 
Well, you know, a Andrew uh, Yang uh, made an announcement that he's planning on or thinking about starting a new political party. I think it's kind of doomed from the get-go because of the campaign finance uh, reform bills that have now hamstrung people from raising money in, in so many different ways. In other words, we've pretty much locked into a two-party system. But the whole notion that there could be a, a separate party that addresses the – I think that, uh, quite my opinion, Donald Trump – in the Republican Party was going a long way towards taking a look at, at addressing those needs. Well, I, I think both parties are behind the curve. You know, I was thinking today about uh, the phenomenon of um, urgent care centers. I don't, I, I don't know what it's like in Florida, but uh, where I've relocated in the central Pennsylvania, uh, the hospital systems are cr creating urgent care centers uh, mm -hmm. all over the place. They're, they're, I mean, uh, they're not as ubiquitous as McDonald's, uh, but it's a it's it's the same business model, right? And I think that was driven primarily uh, to to steer needless cases away from emergency hospital emergency rooms. Uh, but they're so popular; they've clearly met a need. So so the so the hospital administrators in this one instance felt the pulse of the public and discovered a need. Congress doesn't do that, and the, and the handwriting on the wall in Congress is, for for example, uh, PwC, the accounting firm, in August polled something like 1,700 workers, which is a large cross sample, mm -hmm. and they discovered, shockingly, that two thirds of those workers were considering switching jobs uh, for higher pay, but they also want more flexibility. I mean, f flexibility in the workplace is a huge issue for, mm -hmm. for younger people, especially people with uh, children, given uh, COVID's effects on, on the schools. Uh, but the point, you have to ask, like the Democrats are trying to ram through a, a close to a $2 trillion tax hike. I mean, uh, now we need revenues to, to pay for our outrageous spending, no doubt. Uh, but will the tax bill choke off the innovation in the workplace that the uh, younger people are seeking. Um, we don't know because there's no debate. Uh, Congress no longer is a deliberative body. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't want debate. Uh, moderation is considered a deviancy so that, so, so that when a uh, moderate Democrat like Joe Manchin says, hey, let's slow down and really take a careful look at what we're doing, I mean, he's denounced, you know, by the... the yeah, the, what an the, interesting point. I, you're reminding me that our own uh, Byron Donalds, who's our uh, U.S. congressman, uh, mentioned to me that uh, right now we're not having those deliberations and subcommittees and, and committee meetings. So, unfortunately, those just go straight from, uh, straight from uh, the uh, putting together the bill to uh, voting on the bill without any kind of the deliberative process. Yeah, I can remember during the 80s and 90s when I was covering Congress, among other places, uh, that you could spend uh, weeks in a committee hearing, mm -hmm. and, and the deliberations were, were just uh, eye-opening, and it was information that the public needed to digest to see if Congress was on the right track. And you no longer have those thorough uh, nonpartisan committee hearings. Uh, it's it's pretty much uh, Schumer and Nancy Pelosi get in a room. Uh, they're being advised by people who are unelected. Right. And we have no idea where the uh, financial interests of these advisors lie. 
I, you know, I, I just cynically assume that the, they're, they're trying to line their own pockets. And, and from those hidden behind-the-door deliberations comes a policy. And, and again, when, when moderates stand up, I, I, under, I read today that uh, Senator Mark Warner of Virginia is, is now uh, having doubts about these proposals. I mean, they, they are denounced. The, the, the party tries to crush them. And this is the Democratic Party that in the 90s had, had a group of moderates called the Blue Dog Democrats. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Oh, John Bro and yeah. company? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they were... They were uh, liberal on social issues, but but conservative on financial issues, and they they were a dominant force in the Democratic Party. And you know, there's no room for people like that today. Yeah, there's so much intolerance, which is frankly just uh, it amazes to me that the uh, Democrat Party has evolved to the point where it is totally totally intolerant of free speech. <laughs> it used to be the champions of the ACLU and and other organizations. It's just amazing. Well, you know, I'm no fan of Trump, and I'm no fan of Biden, and I cynically think I'm being funny when I say, how is Mussolini polling? Because both political parties seem to try to be emulating Il Duce. Um, So, you know, I I agree with you that that free speech is is being trampled. Uh, You know, there is no room uh, for debate, and... I think that the average person at some point is is going to revolt, and and maybe one of the parties will will their eyes will open, and they will suddenly feel the pulse of the public, and maybe they will design a, a platform that appeals to the uh, wants of the American people, the needs of the American people, and not their uh, big donors. Yeah. Well, what about the thought? And I realize you're not a Trump fan. I understand that. I am, but uh, I will say proudly, but. Uh, his agenda, I think, really did address the needs of the people. It was kind of unique. It was the uh, really appealing to the working man, to the blue collar. I mean, he's he has tremendous appeals today. It was just amazing the appeal that he has. What do you think of his platform? Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I some of the things he did was good. He challenged the status quo, mm-hmm. uh, so that was very good. But but Trump was uh, his approach was to be the the bull in the china shop, and he broke all the. Uh, China, yeah. and some of it really needed to be broken, but he, he didn't really um, come up with a, a, new, a new set of dishes, uh, you know, so, so I, you know, I applaud him for stati- challenging uh, the status quo, and we do need leaders like that uh, that won't buy into, um, you know, the way things are done in Washington. He called it the swamp, but I think I called him uh, President Line My Pockets because I think uh, he created his own swamp. But I don't want to get into that debate. Okay, because, uh, <laughs> we, we won't get into that, though. But you brought up some really interesting points today. Uh, you know, one of our a former congressmen told me that we have the best money, the best government that money can buy. <laughs> and I think he's absolutely right about it. Unfortunately, I mean, we've declared that uh, the Supreme Court has declared that money is free speech. And uh, the consequence of that is there's tons of money flowing in and out of government right now. And it's whose interests are being served is the big question. And uh, I don't know how to correct that. I, I happen to agree that uh, I think money should be free speech, but I realize the problems it creates. Well, t- two quick points. Uh, the, the interstate highway system, begun in 56, took 62 years to complete. And when it was completed, it was outdated. 
uh, when aviation began in the 20s, all the airfields were, were made of grass. And my point is, if you're spending $3 trillion on infrastructure over 30 years, uh, you're throwing money into the toilet because yeah. we can't predict the future and, and advances. Great point. Jim, I'm going to leave it. give you the last word here, Jim. I really appreciate your commentary. Again, the two books that I would recommend, great reads. Uh, Follow the Leader and Shake the Money Tree, two great murder mysteries. Jim, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. All right, well, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>